We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and Jim Margulis will be joining me in a moment. This Monday is a BOGO kind of podcast day of sorts on Sox Machine. On Sunday, I posted my conversation with Jim Callis of MLB.com, where we caught up. We chatted about the MLB Draft Combine, Colson Montgomery, Lenin Sosa's promotion, and the latest Major League Baseball draft gossip. Definitely make sure to listen to that episode as it gets away from what's happening in Chicago. This episode, we'll be speaking about what's going on in Chicago. And I have to get something off my chest to start this show. The White Sox, starting on June 10th, had the easiest remaining schedule in baseball. Their opponents had the lowest winning percentage, and after posting a 19-18 record through the gauntlet, what we thought was the toughest part of their schedule in 2022, the White Sox are just 8-8. They are making no ground. Worse, they are 4-6 at home during that stretch. I mean, they almost got swept by the Baltimore Orioles at home. It's June 27th, 71 games into the season. The White Sox are 16 and 21 at home. 16 and 21. They've been outscored by their opponents by 60 runs at home. 60 runs! The average score at guarantee rate field, our White Sox opponents are averaging 5.7 runs per game to the White Sox 4 runs per game. The White Sox have only hit 31 home runs at home in 37 games. Their opponents have hit 47 homers. That's a negative 16 home run differential. With this roster, that should be impossible. The White Sox are a much better team on the road than at home. They are 18 and 16 on the road. If you want to be in attendance for a White Sox winner, you have a better shot of doing so traveling to watch them because you may have noticed traveling anywhere is cheap these days i'm kidding of course everything is expensive and that adds another layer to the fan frustration of watching this white Sox team it is not a cheap venture you spend a lot of money on tickets 
parking's $27 now, and concessions to watch a mediocre product that's severely underachieving based on the talent that they have. That's a terrible business model. By the way, concessions, parking, getting into the stadium, man, Guarantee Ray Field has suddenly become not a good fan experience. The poor people who are contractors hired by the White Sox that are part of the stadium staff, they're understaffed, which means that they are overworked. And on top of that, they for sure are being underpaid for how much they're having to work during these events. Parking can be a nightmare at Guarantee Rayfield. If you're not lined up when the lots are open, you risk raising your stress levels with how slow the process is just to get your car in the parking lot. Our friends from the 108, they wrote a great blog about the security lines at the stadium, and it happened again this weekend. Anyone with a smartphone knew rain was coming on Saturday, but the White Sox had to keep their gate times open and not announce a delay until the gates were open because they were giving away a bobblehead. Thousands of White Sox fans got Reinsdorfed, chilling in the stadium for almost three and a half hours until the actual first pitch because the White Sox have to get that concession money. Then on Sunday, as it's 1 p.m. Central Time, the lines again are flowing to the parking lot at gates 5 and 3 because getting through security is a chore. At gate 5, you scan your ticket, and then you go through security. At gate 3, you go through security and scan your ticket. There is gate 2, but sometimes that's not always open. To avoid this headache, personally, I had to spend an extra $1,000 on top of my season tickets to get stadium club passes so we can use their entrance to avoid any lines. I want to mention many Major League Baseball teams now have season ticket holder entrances. When I went to the Texas Rangers game last year, season ticket holders not only had their own stadium entrance, but they also had their own parking lot. It's a VIP experience as a benefit of being a full season ticket holder for Rangers games. I can't say the same about the White Sox. So the anger and frustration of being a White Sox fan at the moment is layers deep. The ballpark experience would be swept under the rug if the team was just playing good baseball. But they are not. So we are watching a mediocre team play bad baseball, dealing with long lines to park our cars, enter the stadium, and then more lines to get concessions. It's a bad fan experience. To top it all off, one of the TV personalities is going to the White Sox playbook of fan shaming. I'm sure he'll block me on Twitter after sharing this tweet. But Steve Stone on Saturday posted, quote, We seem to have hit a nexus. I call it thinning out the herd. For those of you heading to the exits, adios. For those of you who want the coaches fired, the manager gone, the players traded, and the owner replaced, that's not practical. Welcome to a less bitter world, all others. God forbid White Sox fans are bitter about how the 2022 squad is playing, especially at home when they are spending hundreds, or in my case, thousands of dollars this season to do so. Instead of anyone from the White Sox coming out and saying, we feel your pain, White Sox fans. We know we are not playing well, and we are dedicated to get this right and make the experience a lot more enjoyable at the ballpark. No, we've got the color commentator calling out fans who complain impractical and encouraging to stop watching. 
This is no different when Kenny Williams and Don Cooper would fan shame at Sox Fest of all places. Thanks, everyone, for coming out to our fan convention in January. Let us tell you how disappointed we are that you don't come to our games often enough. So White Sox fans can't express their frustration or disappointment without being called bitter by a TV color commentator. They have to deal with terrible lines at parking, security, concessions, and the payoff is watching a White Sox team who is 16 and 21 at home with a negative 60 run differential. That's some ride to enjoy. For those still listening, I want to say to you that I feel your pain. If you come to us at Sox Machine, you do so because we tell it straight. If a player is good, they are good. If the White Sox are playing good baseball, we tell you why they are playing good baseball. When things are bad, we're not going to blow smoke up your butt and promise sunshine and rainbows are coming. Sometimes, things stay bad. But we always feel your pain. I'd rather hang out with a bunch of angry White Sox fans than apathetic ones. Those fans are already looking forward to watching Justin Fields' training camp highlights because they can't take watching this White Sox team anymore because it's not fun. We know how White Sox fans operate because we've been doing this for so long. When the team stops playing well, White Sox fans typically stop watching, listening, or reading. They will find something better to do. Sure, the ballpark experience may be more enjoyable with 10,000 people in it, but I was at Game 3 of the American League Division Series when Lurie Garcia, of all people, hit that monster home run. I'll never forget that experience. We were promised more of that to come in 2022. It hasn't come. The good news, there are 91 games left. 44 of those will be at home. There's time that things can change for the better. The bad news, there are 91 games left. Things could get worse. The 2022 White Sox baseball in a nutshell. All right, let's get to talking about this weekend of baseball and look ahead to the White Sox West Coast road trip. There was one excellent performance in this four-game downer of a series, and that was Dylan Cease's performance on Sunday. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And Jim, before we chat about Dylan Cease, what was your general overview of what you watched afar this weekend in Chicago? I would say I enjoyed the ride. Jim. <laughs> I just spent nine minutes monologuing about how the yeah. ride sucks right now. <laughs> I was waiting for it. Uh, yeah, it was like, you know, as I mentioned, the wake up call, like the four nothing shutout that was earned by the Orioles. That was, you know, the White Sox tried to compile good innings. Like that's a case where they could really use the home run, but like it wasn't, they, they weren't bad at the plate. They pitched. Okay. It was just, they got beat by a really good defensive performance. That's, you know, if they were 40 and 30, instead of 33 and 35, we'd say like, Oh, well played by the Orioles. Like that just happened to be a random game where they just played really well. And that's a case where like, you know, I know we got tired during the Robin Ventura era, of tipping your cap to another team's performance, but team-wide, like across the entire outfield, impressive job, well done, uh, salute. You know, then it then was a different matter, like <laughs> the next two games. Like that was a case where just, you know, they they, they used up their, their graceful loss 
And, and then it was just more a matter of just like being undermanned, under talented, not as talented as you might think. Just uh, you know, the misfit pieces. Um, maybe more talented on paper, but not more talented when you uh, multiply everything by 0.7 because people can only run at like 70, 80% capacity. So they can't really use their full, uh, you know, their, their full talent. So it, you're not really seeing what they are on paper and it's something else and something maybe not great. So yeah, that's, that's where it got scary. And then like what looked like a straightforward loss or a straightforward win on Sunday almost turned into a loss, you know, snatching uh defeat from the jaws of victory with Jose Abreu forgetting how to catch. So yeah, it's, um, you know, I did a couple of radio spots on the score and basically, you know, I always think back to James Fegan talking about Dan Hayes reporting on the twins early last year. And, you know, uh, James saying, well, a number of cities should turn around and such. And Dan Hayes just like saying in all caps, the vibes are bad. <laughs> I keep thinking like along the same lines, like, yeah, it's like they should improve. You know, X should come back. Y should play better. You know, you know, some things can't be explained, but then it's just like, well, if this were to be a disappointing season, this is how it would look. And so I just keep coming back to that. Like, uh, we can, you know, this feels like if we're talking about this in, you know, like Rick Hahn having the same press conference every two weeks because the answers are the same. Like, mm-hmm. that's what it would be like. So I'm open-minded to the possibility that just, you know, it's not going to turn around in a meaningful way. And you just have to hope that the... AL Central falls back down to them versus them ascending to great heights and, and, and seizing it. John Greenberg pointed that out in his most recent media column on The Athletic, posting very similar quotes that Rick Hahn said at the beginning of June and what he recently said to the media. So I know John Greenberg is doing the Lord's work right now and keeping track of what Rick Hahn is saying to every, you know, with every media appearance right now. Uh, before each home series. So that means the next time Rick Hahn's going to speak is after this West Coast road trip. It'll be July 4th when the Minnesota Twins come. And uh, we'll see if he says very similar things that he said uh, the last few times during this season. Something that I I look forward to setting off sparklers in the not-too-distant future. (laughs) Something that you just said, Jim, that caught my attention was the White Sox on paper should have more talent, but when you... Put thing when when they play the game and you're watching the game, that might not be the case when you're comparing the White Sox and the Orioles. Is it crazy to say I would rather have the Orioles position players than the White Sox current position player group? Mm, a little. Just we did see like a lot of Jorge Mateo, <laughs> like just balling out. Which is yeah, Jorge I don't know Mateo. if that's the case. Like a lot, a lot of the action seemed uh, contingent on him, like in terms of the Orioles being difference makers. So. Maybe not that, but I will say like it is a stunning difference in terms of outfield. And when you build an outfield mm-hmm. with athleticism in mind and with the ability to cover like all three positions in mind versus an outfield where it's strong in the center and then you just have to cobble together permutations in the corners or hope that you can have like a strength and a weakness coming together and uh, or, or having a strength that can give or way to a different strength. If the game situations are right, kind of reminds me a little bit of trading for closers every deadline, just because like, uh, you know, like in order for a closer to make sense, you have to have game shapes that make sense and include them. So in order to have like an Adam angle really pay off as a defensive replacement, you need to have him, 
come into games where they have the lead. You know, it's that kind of thing in mind. They're not really, well, I think they had an idea of how to build leads, which is like getting Gavin Sheets and Andrew Vaughn to hit like 50 homers between them this year, or, you know, yeah, maybe 45, I would say might be more, uh, more realistic, but either way, like they're counting on homers from Sheets, uh, big year from Vaughn and, and then Angle coming in and, and being like the perfect patch. And then Pollock also, once he was added late, um, also patching uh, uh, either corner. And right now with Sheets needing a, a stint down in Charlotte and with Angle being hurt and with Pollock being not as great in the corner as they might have thought, it's, it's uh, yeah, you don't have that uh, three outfielder coverage that the way the Orioles do. And I think, you know, when you see that, so starkly concentrated in one series with all the balls in the gap being chased down by one team and having Larry Garcia playing 275 feet uh, when like Luis Robert plays 315 and, you know, having to rush back to the wall, you know, uh, and, and not coming close to making and then, 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 you know, uh, making errors when he tries to rush his actions back to the infield. Like, yeah, it's a case where, you know, that's, that's what I think is when they're not hitting the homers, um. Yeah, and if we can say like, oh, this team isn't hitting the homers we thought, then yeah, I think I'd rather have the Orioles outfield. I think comparing the two real quick, Orioles outfield, superior. I think Adley Rushman is going to be a stud, and mm-hmm. he looked really good this weekend. So I like the Orioles catching better than the White Sox current catchers. I'll give you the infield. Yeah, give me Tim Anderson, I don't know if I would take a Bra- this version of Brayu over Mountcastle at the moment. And so I guess you'll get, yeah, so Tim Anderson. If you put Tim Anderson in the Baltimore Orioles, it'd be a lot better. Uh, I don't know if they'll be in the thick of things in the American League East with how strong that division is. But I, I'm hoping that a 2 by 4 smacked Rick Hahn in the face watching this game mm-hmm. or these this series. And I hope he values defense a lot more because... My Lord, the Orioles' defense, especially Cedric Mullins, can go out and get it. And every time I watched Austin Hayes as he was playing in front of me as I attended every game, I want Austin Hayes on the Chicago White Sox gym. He would fix right field for the White Sox. He takes really good routes to the ball. You don't have to worry about him. He would lead the team currently in home runs and RBIs right now. Uh, So, yeah, Austin Hayes would be a great addition to the White Sox, but he's not going anywhere as the Orioles are trying to build a stronger team. It is 2022, the White Sox are in the contention window, and oh my God, we're comparing position players with the Baltimore Orioles and asking who's got a better talent set, (laughs) the White Sox or the last place Orioles. That's terrible. One advantage the White Sox did have was on Sunday with Dylan Cease starting that game. Mm -hmm. Dylan Cease maybe turned in the best performance of his career, Jim. 13 strikeouts, a career high over seven innings. This week was a monster week for Dylan Cease. Even we pointed this out in last week's podcast episode before the Blue Jays start. Even though Dylan Cease had zero earned runs allowed in the month of June, he allowed nine runs. Yeah. Because <laughs> he was not pitching over airs. And some of those unearned runs were his fault on a bases loaded pickoff attempt that he threw into the outfield when trying to pick off a runner at second base. So it was weird. But this week was not weird. Mm-hmm. In two starts, Cease pitched 13 innings, only allowed five hits, only allowed one earned run, which was a solo homer. He only walked three batters. So eight base runners against Dylan Cease in his two starts this week. 
he struck out 24 batters. If it wasn't for Houston's no-hitter, Jim, Dylan Cease would be the slam-dunk American League pitcher of the week. So what's working for Cease? It seems like he's just, uh, he soldiered through, you know, I'm not sure if you call it a dead arm period, but, you know, it's it's often described as a dead arm period, um, you know, during spring training, like late in spring training, calendar turning to April as the, you know, the the pitches pile up and, and they hit that first wall of fatigue, um, you know, you, you see the velocity down, you see like the in-start effectiveness down and you think like, oh, this is not good, but then they end up rebounding. And, and that seems to be like the classic case here. Like the, the stuff was still good. Like the velocity was fine. The, you know, the, the pitch data was more or less fine, but just the release point was off. The, um, you know, he was walking too many guys, like, as you mentioned, uh, getting really long innings sometimes with mistakes, but then uh, he would compound mistakes made by others by having to throw, you know, an extra 15, 20 pitches himself, and he would just get thrown off. But we've seen, you know, the the defense be more or less fine, and, and so, you know, not forcing him to record extra outs, and he's taking care of business himself. So, uh, yeah, I, I think in order for me to, like, feel great about Cease as opposed to like very good about him. Like I wouldn't mind seeing just the uh, defense throw him uh, a couple curveballs. Like, you know, if the Abreu ninth inning happened in like the fifth where he dropped a ball to start off the inning and all of a sudden, you know, there's unearned runs in play that, that might score if Cease doesn't step up and uh, get a grounder or, you know, some, some harmless fly balls that don't allow player uh, runners to advance. Like that's, I think the one thing in the season that makes me think like, yeah, you know, it's, you look at his ERA two one five six, but that's ten hundred runs not accounting for, and a lot of them were just innings that he made worse. Uh, even if he didn't, uh, you know, he wasn't the root cause. He didn't help, and uh, you know, my hope is that it just you know that was partially compounded by the dead arm period or just lesser stuff, in season fatigue, just a slump because he just might be a little bit naturally inconsistent based on uh, how much he how much power he packs into a frame that isn't all that big so maybe just a little case where his mechanics can't get out of whack from overexertion or something like that but it does seem like that that cease that was um you know falling off and, and throwing you know too many pitches left-handed batter's box etc he's got that under control he's also faced two lineups that should match up well for him because he just you know he doesn't have to throw his changeup at all he can just throw sliders and curveballs away from right-handed hitters but he's doing it and that's it hasn't always been the case so uh i i think you know maybe the next test would be a lineup with more lefties just to see if he does get roped into throwing that change up that's you know worth throwing a couple times for uh exposure sake but is not really worth um trying to set up hitters with because it can get him in trouble i, I think that's really all I'd want to see, but also, you know, I don't really want to see it because I want to see the White Sox win. So if lineups uh, are uh, at a disadvantage with the way they're composed facing him, great. Go for it. Yeah, Dylan sees against Baltimore. Again, the called strike whiff rate. It's the percentage of a pitch thrown that's either a called strike or a whiff. It tries to eliminate balls in play and foul balls for a particular pitcher. And you can find this stat on Baseball Savant under the player breakdown of specific games. Dylan sees through 46 sliders against Baltimore. The called strike whiff rate on that pitch, Jim, was 46%. And the curve was good, too. That is insane. The curve was 47%. Yeah, and in smaller numbers, but getting two tilts and uh, making them, like, you know, just they see spin, but they don't exactly know 
what speed or what angle. And that's pretty cool. Yes. I mean, they only hit two foul balls on off his curveball of the 15 that they saw and only four foul balls off of his slider uh, on 28 swings. He got 16 whiffs, 57% of the time Baltimore swung at CeCe's slider. They whiffed. That is incredible. Now his fastball, he threw the fastball 39 times. He had a called strike whiff rate of 28%. That's pretty good. Topped out at 100. He did. Uh, he Out of the 16 swings for Baltimore, they fouled off 10 of his fastballs. So he could get a little bit more whiffs from the, the four-seam fastball, but maybe this is the formula that works for Dylan Cease is a lot of sliders. And again, this is something that I've seen in college baseball. I'm seeing it in minor league baseball, and we're also seeing it across major league baseball for these type of right-handed pitchers, Jim, that have this slider action, especially when Cease is approaching 90 miles per hour with his slider, that throw the slider more than the fastball. I mean, you could use the fastball to get ahead of batters Mm -hmm. to establish the strike zone and get the umpire's eyes focused, uh, which we have learned this past week is key uh, based on who the home plate umpire is. But for Mm -hmm. Cease, if if the slider's his primary pitch and arm-wise, he feels no repercussions from it, I say stick with it because obviously it's incredibly effective. And the next time we see Cease is going to be in San Francisco against the Giants at that stadium. And that's a pitcher's paradise. And we may see another fantastic outing from Dylan Cease. And perhaps uh, he might be the lone all-star representative for the White Sox, the all-star game in Los Angeles. Yeah, I, I think, you know, when it comes to slider usage that heavy, I think my only concern besides health, which doesn't seem to be an issue here, knock on wood, is that, you know, I worry or I think kind of about like Carlos Rodon before uh, his his big year and how it just it was effective for getting, uh, you know, good run prevention, but also just a lot of foul tips, a lot of just balls uh, uh, knocked away, defended against. Um, not a whole lot of cheap balls put into play to you know have those kind of seven pitch innings which Cease had at the end of a start. Like it's a way to kind of throw 110 pitches over five or five plus uh, with sometimes with the way the slider gets touched. Um, you know, not hit hard, but just touched enough to where he has to throw two or three extra pitches in a plate appearance. And uh, but you know, with the way he's thrown the last two times out, you know, maybe he's you know like Rodon in the same thing between the fastball having that kind of power. And the slider being uh, a pitch that isn't necessarily just for great swings and misses, but can, uh, you know, get some called strikes, you know, be some, uh, uh, you know, like, as you mentioned early in the count, when they're not looking for it, drop it in, you know, that, that sort of thing, you know, maybe that's a way for him to throw that slider as much as he wants, but also not have at bats drag on six, seven pitches with regularity. I give. I, I I will pray for opposing hitters if Dylan Cease is starting to drop knuckle curves for strike one to begin the at-bat. You, I think you're in trouble if he's yeah. able to do that. It's going to sometimes, be Sometimes they roll on him. Like, that's the one that's the... Like, I like that he's throwing a slider more than this curveball because I think his curveball sometimes has more generous mistakes to where, like, it just doesn't have that sharp bite and they see it their eyes and they see it coming down like, oh, I know what this is. And then I think that's the one that tends to get pounded in a way that the slider does not. So 
But you I, know, I think, you know, opposing hitters though, they don't want to swing anything that's breaking on the first pitch that they see. Yeah, but just yeah, sometimes just when it comes in like 76, 77, they can wait back on it. Oh, uh, yeah. But when it has the, when it has like the sharp bites, when you've just thrown it four strikes, but it, when he doesn't mind that it's like up in the zone because it has a sharp bite, that's one thing. But it just like sometimes there are some curveballs he throws, and I think this is true for a lot of curveballers that just it doesn't have that bite, so it just looks like a uh, like. It must look like an ephus to some hitters who are looking for fastball, but just see it spinning above their eyes and just tracking it downward, nice in the, the upper half of the zone. Like, oh, I can I can adjust for that. So that's my one reservation with the curveball. But the slider seems to be serving that purpose of just like spin that they can't track that comes in too fast for them to really adjust for it in a meaningful way. I mean, he did throw the knuckle curve harder against Baltimore, two point yeah. two miles per hour higher than his season average. He was averaging. 82 and a half miles per hour with the knuckle curve, 88 miles per hour with the slider, and he was averaging 98 on the four seam fastball. So you are right, Jim. Maybe Cease is done with his dead arm period, and he has recaptured his velocity on the four seamer, and he's throwing his breaking pitches harder. All right, let's talk about something bad again, and that's the home run problem for the White Sox. Seven game homestand. It is warm to very hot in Chicago. Four home runs. Mm -hmm. In 71 games, the White Sox have hit 59 home runs. That's 25th in Major League Baseball. They're on pace to hit 135 home runs in 2022. That is 65 fewer homers than they hit in 2021 when they hit 190. The pitching staff has allowed 79 home runs. You may think that's not good. Well, when you look at the home run differential, you are correct. That is a negative 20 home run differential. The pitching staff is on pace to allow 180 home runs in 2022. Last year, they allowed 182 homers. So the pitching staff is right on par with the amount of home runs they allowed last year in 2022. But my Lord, 135 home runs is the pace for this current White Sox lineup to hit in 2022. Jim, it's not early. It is hot in Chicago. The wind was blowing out on Sunday at Guarantee Rate Field to left field and center field. Where are the home runs? I was looking when you mentioned 135. I was trying to think, like, when's the last time they hit that few? And they did hit 136 in 2015, but the last time they hit fewer than 135 uh, was 1992. So that's Frank Thomas hitting 24 uh George Bell actually led the team of 25. Robin Ventura had 16, Ron Karkovice 13, everybody else single digits. So that's what we're looking at here. They hit 110 for the year as a team. They had Steve Saxon, Craig Grayback up the middle. Good times. Um, you know, when, when thinking about just, a, uh, you know, the, the through line for this, I guess good and bad. One is that, you know, watching Yasmani Grandal trying to hit, you know, without functioning legs or at least like strong legs um not really getting that kind of you know powerful rotation that we saw when he launched balls like well into the, the right field seats um you know there there was that that idea in my head um and then like counterpoint be like watching Lenin Sosa in Birmingham this year uh, watching how his swing is getting more powerful you know looking at his video last year in Winston-Salem uh, versus this year in Birmingham and just seeing like his lower half a lot more engaged, like seeing just the less handsy on the swing, less like hands forward and just seeing that that lower body drive, the, the real rotation coming through with the follow through. 
I just wonder, you know, partially, you know, it's Jimenez being out, some some people not being there, um, you know, like Sheets needing a retooling. Um, you know, there are cases like that. But I also wonder just, you know, all these guys who can't run 100%, you know, Tim Anderson, groin injury, uh, you know, Angle had the hamstring, uh, Mankata's got quad and, uh, you know, everything he's got going on. You got a, a Bray with a hip injury. You have like all these just leg issues all over the place. Uh, Robert with vague leg. Um, I just wonder if just they don't have bases. Like if that's the case where they're just not, you know, Hitting the ball with that kind of full, they're not getting, you know, my, my dad would say, they're not putting their pants into it. <laughs> that's, what, that's, that's how my dad puts it. Uh, just, you know, watching all those fly balls go to right center and kind of die just short of the warning track and most of the time in Cedric Mullins' glove. Like that's just kind of reminds me of just not getting that extra 15, 20 feet of power. And, and I, I just think maybe just you look at the legs and say like, oh, they just... They need their legs and they don't have their legs. That's that's my thought. I don't know if you have any other ones, but when you see just up and down the line, just nobody getting to 10 homers yet, uh, that seems to be the common thread. So I just mentioned the White Sox are on pace to hit 135 homers this season. The New York Yankees already have 121 home runs hit this year. <laughs> Aaron Judge has 28 homers, Jim. Aaron Judge on June 27th may not have to play a game the rest of the season, and he would hit more homers than anyone on the 2022 Chicago White Sox. And looking at, so Jose Abreu right now. Jose Abreu is on pace to play 157 games this year of the 162-game schedule. He's got nine home runs, which means that he's on pace to hit 21 homers this year. By far the lowest of his career over a 162-game season when he's playing that many games. Jake Berger's second in the team in homers with eight. So if he continues to play every day, which is not going to be the case because Yohan Makata is going to return at some point. But Jake Berger would be on pace to hit 23 homers this year. Luis Robert and Andrew Vaughn have seven homers apiece. Robert and Vaughn are on pace to hit 18 or 19 homers. Last year, Eloy Jimenez, Gavin Sheets, Luis Robert, Mancata, Vaughn, Anderson all hit more than 10 homers, and only Grandal and Abreu hit more than 20, with Grandal hitting 23 and Abreu hitting 30. And you had 21 hitters total in 2021 hitting a home run for the Chicago White Sox. So a, a lot of guys were involved, like... With the injuries thing, I get it, but you only had Aloy Jimenez for 55 games last year. Mm -hmm. You only had Luis Robert available for 68 games last year. You only had Yasmani Grandal available for 93 games last year. And, yeah, I, I, there, there's got to be something more. And I'm glad you mentioned as far as the legs and not having the lower half because logically that does make sense. If there are so many lower half injuries and the White Sox do not have that base, which is where a lot of power comes from for a particular hitter, then if they're going up there with only the potential to hit at 70% power capability, Jim, well, then it makes a lot of sense that they're only on pace for 135 home runs. But if they're this banged up, I mean, you're not running, so you're, mm -hmm. you're not stealing. 
you really can't risk going first to third all the time because if you do, your hamstring might be barking as you round second base and now you're hurt. Uh, first to home is a dangerous endeavor depending on the base runner. Doubles are not coming that frequently for the White Sox as well. Like the death by a thousand paper cuts type of offense only works if you have the type of speed that we saw the Kansas City Royals have when they made their runs in the American League to win back-to-back pennants and then the World Series. But the the White Sox don't have a Lorenzo Cain that presses the issue, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And if you're not hitting doubles after you're getting singles, and if you don't have the physical capabilities of stealing bases, like, how are the White Sox supposed to score runs, Jim? Oh, yeah, and, and, you know, that Royals team, uh, it came up when, or it came to mind when you're talking about, like, you know, catching the ball. And that's a case where like uh, the White Sox right now kind of have that Royals offense without the Royals defense. Like just the, you know, they don't strike out too much. Uh, they're, you know, kind of contact oriented, but um, not making great contact, but they also just can't make use of the contact they're making because they can't leg things out or they can't take the extra base. Uh, they, they can't steal bases. So you're just kind of stuck with this team that is um, half a team. It's got pitching. It's got, you know, the, the pitching's fine. Like, I can't, even like Lucas Giolito struggles. They It's hard to watch him, but also it doesn't really matter. Like, Cueto's pitching above average. Cease is pitching above average. Lynn is rounding into shape nicely. Kopech's been pretty good uh, around his little injury scare. So it's like, Giolito, you know, he's rough. That's fine. Most teams' fifth starters suck. The White Sox are pretty good one through four, and if he needs a little bit of time to get back into shape, fine. You know, it's... It's not the problem. It's a problem, but just like it's only a problem because the offense can't generate runs and they can't really catch the ball in a remarkable way uh, behind them. And sometimes they make remarkable errors behind uh, their pitcher. So that's, I think, where they're at right now. And that's why it feels like such a misfit team. And they are going to have to start hitting the ball with authority. Um, But it's hard to know where that's coming from when all the injury situations are so, uh, I guess, like incompletely sketched out for us like Luis Robert I don't know like he's just uh it looked like he was dogging it then he's not because he has leg soreness it feels like you know like we're just watching it and then having no real explanation or dates behind any of the when he wasn't feeling great made it feel like it was after the fact um you know uh explanation for why he wasn't running and why he stayed in the game like it just I'm, I don't necessarily think it was, but, you know, a lot of people were saying that Luis Roberts dogging is like, yeah, it kind of looks like it. And also like the explanations very, uh, it doesn't satisfy. And that's because everybody's hurt. So like, what are we watching here? And I think that kind of gets to your point of, you know, kind of ticket holder dissatisfaction is when you're watching a whole bunch of, you know, it, it almost feels like a, uh, an outlet store of baseball talent. Like everything's <laughs> slightly off or repackaged or returned or dropped but still working like it's just everything's got a tag everything's as is uh you know some people might find a deal but otherwise it's just like oh now i know why you know uh yeah now i you know you always go to an outlet store thinking maybe you can find a deal and you leave it being like eh that's why they're outlet stores that's kind of what it feels like <laughs> except you're not paying outlet prices to watch the white Sox here you know they're drawing good weekend crowds because the weekend sold out uh you know, at least lower bowl sold out well in advance thinking that this is going to be a great place to spend the summer. Yes. The White Sox as a team are 20th in baseball and OBP, so they're not walking as often as they should. They're 24th in slugging, but they're 7th in batting average, Jim. They have the 7th best batting average in baseball. 
22nd in OPS, but they got the seventh best batting average in baseball. Yeah. This team hits a lot of singles. And again, if you can't run, if you don't have the leg strength to hit homers and you don't have the leg strength to be fast in the bases, dude, hitting singles all the time, is not, it, that's not going to work. It's like watching a kind of like late career Frank Thomas when he had the ankle and foot injuries. And like anytime he was limited to a single, he just thought like, oh, great. Yep. Well, here it comes. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch him run. Yeah, here comes the double play. I don't know how you fix this midseason. Someone needs to get hot. Someone, I, yeah, I just don't know. And they're really not breaking out of this pattern, it feels like. Like, this is kind of how they were in April. This is kind of how they were in May. And this now we're in June. We're having this conversation. Like, th- this formula is not working. And I also don't think it tailors well to the type of talent that the White Sox have on their roster. But this is who they are right now with their physical limitations. But... Yeah, if we in this upcoming road trip, if we see more similar games to what we saw in the first three games against the Orioles, well, yeah, we know why. They're not hitting home runs. Everybody else in Major League Baseball, home run production has picked up big time for some teams, not for the White Sox. And they better find that home run stroke soon or they're going to get left behind uh, in some games unless nobody else hits homers. In the American League Central. That's the saving grace. The White Sox are in the American League Central. Because if they were in the American League East, Jim, they'd be in dead last. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Conversations would be a lot different for this White Sox team. But Jim and I will take a quick break. Coming after a word from our sponsors, we'll take a look at the American League Central as there's some really shocking news that impacts the division. And preview the upcoming series for the White Sox as they head to Anaheim to face the Angels. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, we're going to take a look at the American League Central because some very surprising news happened late Sunday night. Again, at the standings for the AL Central, the Minnesota Twins have a two-game lead again as they won their last game to salvage and save that home series against Cleveland to avoid a sweep as the Guardians won two out of three of Minneapolis. And then the Minnesota Twins have won their last two games against the Colorado Rockies. They're 41-33. and Cleveland, after losing that last game in Minneapolis, Faced the Boston Red Sox, and the Red Sox beat them up. They swept the Guardians. So the Guardians are back in second place. They're 36-32. and 32. 
The White Sox are five and a half games back of the Minnesota Twins at 34 and 37. They're three and a half games back of Cleveland for second place. Detroit and Kansas City, they're chilling in the bottom of the standings, Jim. But back to the Minnesota Twins. The Twins are in first place. Up by two games of the Guardians. Big series this week. Monday through Thursday. Five games in four days in Cleveland. And then this breaking news from Kendall Rogers, the managing editor of D1Baseball.com, one of the best resources on college baseball. And Kendall reported breaking LSU baseball is hiring Minnesota Twins pitching coach Wes Johnson as its new pitching pitching coach. Johnson spent the last four seasons with the Minnesota Twins and marks a blockbuster hire for head coach Jay Johnson. Jim, on its face, in the middle of the season, now with one of the biggest series of the season for the Minnesota Twins, playing five games in Cleveland, trying to stay ahead in the American League Central, their pitching coach is leaving them to go back to college and be LSU's pitching coach. What do you make of this news? It shocked me uh, for starters until I saw what the money was or what, you know, the rumors of the money was. And then it became a lot more clear, uh, you know, just exactly what the reasoning was like, you know, Kyle Bodie, uh, he's the uh, founder of driveline baseball and he's been, uh, He's worked for the Reds and the, their director of minor league pitching. So he's, you know, been on both sides of it and, and worked with college programs and such. And he said that uh, in a tweet that he said that uh, he found an article that said Wes Johnson is making $350,000 a year as a Twins pitching coach. And that was when he was hired from Arkansas. So maybe making a little bit more, you know, in, in subsequent years. Uh, but he says sources tell me he's making double that at LSU. Um, you know, whether it's exactly double or whether it's like, you know, 600, you know, on the, you know, rounding up from 500 versus rounding down, uh, that, that sort of difference like that, that's substantial, uh, especially like, say if it's a, you really like the college game and you don't mind spending the rest of your career there. Like I could see a case where this might make it very tough for him to ever coach in the majors again, but if he doesn't really care to, and some, I think some coaches like the college game, uh, more whether it's football, baseball, basketball, etc. I think some like the rhythm of the college game more and just the the role of it. Uh, this could be a good move for him. But yeah, it's you don't see this happen. Uh, you, yeah, I guess we haven't really seen much of a crossover between college and, and pros until recently. And I guess this is maybe one of the ramifications of that is like, oh, you might still have those college pressures of getting paid really well to do the same job and maybe an easier job in some regards. The reason this is so shocking to me, and I watch college baseball, I cover it for us on SoxMachine.com, Hotty Toddy, Ole Miss wins the College World Series on hashtag wild pitch offense, Jim. Uh, I don't know if you saw that. Did, yeah. Bottom of the eighth inning, <laughs> scoring on a wild pitch. Last team to enter the College World Series as far as the playoff field, and they win the championship. That's similar to a 12 seed in the men's or women's basketball tournament winning the whole thing. It's a big deal. But this overshadows everything that Ole Miss just accomplished winning the College World Series because now this opens up Pandora's box. We know the SEC has money for football, Jim. Mm -hmm. That's why Nick Saban will never go back to the NFL because the NFL can't afford Nick Saban. 
And that's the same for all of the SEC football coaches. It's you make a lot more money and you have a lot more control. So how in the world can the NFL beat that? And we know that they're starting to pay basketball coaches that type of cash to come to the SEC. If SEC baseball programs all of a sudden have this type of cash, then Major League Baseball teams are going to have to start sweating because, for example, with Ethan Katz, who's doing a good job with the White Sox, what is stopping Vanderbilt dropping $700,000 on on his feet to come be the pitching coach at Vanderbilt? I can't imagine the White Sox matching that type of offer for Ethan Katz because in the SEC... It's, a, it's the Cold War when it comes to athletics, Jay. Mm-hmm. If LSU is doing this, Florida's going to do it. Arkansas is going to do it. Vanderbilt is going to do it because they don't spend a lot of money in football and basketball because they're not that great. M-I-Z. I don't know about Missouri. <laughs> but, but Texas is coming to the SEC. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oklahoma is going to come to the SEC. The last two champions in college baseball, Ole Miss and Mississippi State, that get, they, they've got cash. Uh, Kentucky has built very impressive facilities as of late. They've got cash. If the SEC all of a sudden is dropping $500,000 plus to attract the best pitching minds in baseball, professional or collegian, to be their pitching coaches, I think every Major League Baseball team is going to have to start being worried that SEC programs or maybe even some ACC programs and possibly some Pac-12 programs are going to be poaching your coaches because they can pay more. Yeah, I can see it being, you know, my thought is maybe it doesn't affect somebody like Ethan Katz as as much as it might affect somebody like Chris Fetter, who was formerly Michigan's pitching coach, now with the Tigers, but Mm -hmm. there's some uncertainty around the Tigers situation, like A.J. Hinch, like, does he have an opt out? Uh, you know, does Chris Fetter want to coach at Michigan because their coaches went to Clemson? Was it, did he go to Clemson? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I'm getting all the jobs mixed up because all this job hopping that's going on. Like, who went to Florida State? Who went? Uh, Notre Dame. Yeah, Notre Dame. Getting State. those jobs confused. The north to south. Um, so I could see it being like affecting someone like Johnson, like Fetter, like guys who went from college to the pros because of the prestige, uh, you know, wanting to take that, that shot to see how they do with the best of the best. But since they have uh, familiarity with the college program, with recruiting, with everything like that, like, you know, if, if they're suddenly they're getting paid more, I can see that, that, that pipeline being shut off. I can see being more of a brain drain than losing uh, established pitching coaches, just because I think, you know, like we know with, uh, 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 on basketball and football and such like it's a different thing coaching you know pros versus coaching college kids recruiting and, and glad handing versus actually just you know making money and being able to pay guys above the table everybody knows that everybody's making that sort of thing like some coaches want to deal with that some coaches don't some coaches like having the power over kids some coaches would rather not uh you know don't have any interest in that so i think you know it's still going to have two different um you know I think you're going to have two different kinds of coaches and one might not have one interest uh, in the other field, but for this pipeline that was going between college and pros, 
if there's that much money in the college game, um, yeah, I mean, baseball teams are notorious for not paying uh, coaches and like front office people more than they have to. Like, you know, everybody who works in baseball because they want to work in baseball, that gets tested how much they want to work in baseball mm-hmm. when they're, you know, programmers and, and you know, making you know, the kind of jobs that can be very uh, you know, lucrative with uh, less sexy, less popular companies, uh, less companies people want to talk to you about at parties <laughs> like that's the case where you know uh, you know i'm thinking like with the uh white Sox losing ben hansen their biomechanical ex- uh, expert to intel i believe he went to uh just because they can pay him more like just you know they they want to pay him more and he wants to do different things like we've seen uh teams lose that already just because they want to pay and yeah i, I just think this is going to be a case where that pipeline that source of talent for pro teams is going to be cut off and I don't know how this is going to affect the Twins, though, just because I think Wes Johnson's track record was kind of mixed. Um, It kind of reminds me a little bit of Don Cooper in 2007 when, you know, he had like a heat check and they threw like David Ardsman, Andy Sisko, and like all these, you know, high octane relievers at him and said like, okay, fix all these guys. And he couldn't, they they, they crumbled. Last year's pitching staff uh, with the Twins, the way it kind of fell apart, reminded me of that, like, all these guys, hey, fix them. You're Wes Johnson. You had great returns the first year. We're going to put more in your plate. And it all fell apart. Uh, I remember like, you know, um, Aaron Gleeman for The Athletic talking about how Wes Johnson's going to fix Ian Hamilton. Wes Johnson's going to fix Juan Manaya and Alex Colomay. He's got a way to make Alex Colomay better. And just I was, I was reading that like, that's a lot for pitchers who are, you know, in Colomay's case, already getting by, or in Hamilton's case, lost velocity. And, you know, all, you know, Colomay went backwards. Hamilton hasn't found it. Uh, Manaya has been the same Manaya he's always been. So that's, with, with the Twins, I can see it maybe not having as big of an impact as they might, uh, you know, you might normally think, just because uh, he's been a little bit up and down during his time. But it's a shock. You know, I, we don't see this just because um, usually pitching coaches once they're pitching coaches like they have nowhere else to go mm-hmm. the rare manager job and that's about it i am surprised that chris fetter hasn't left detroit to take the job at michigan but it might be principal i'm in the middle of the season i'm not leaving this job as i'm under contract and leave this team behind disorganized with their pitching staff for me to be the head baseball coach of Michigan. Maybe now he changes his mind because within the division, Wes Johnson has done Mm -hmm. it. And the thing about the twins watching them the last week and getting the reactions from Minneapolis, their bullpen is starting to break down on them. They're starting to have late inning issues. So this five game series in Cleveland in four days is going to be fascinating. The twins are going to have to hit because Cleveland went to Minneapolis and won two out of three. It would not surprise me if Cleveland won four out of five against the Twins these next four days. And then Cleveland is back in first place. Minnesota maybe faces more bullpen issues and everyone's going to be asking the question, all right, so who's responsible in trying to fix this? Because the pitching coach left for LSU about halfway through the season. Yeah, well, and it, I, this, I, this is just fascinating. I can see Federer like, wanting to run from the Tigers situation. Like, that's not fun. Uh, Manning struggling, Mize is out, Rodriguez is off uh, on the restricted list. Like, there's not a whole lot. You know, the Scoobles good, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's kind of about it. 
but it might be principle, yeah. right? He's not going to leave until the season is over. But now there's an example within the division of someone bolting to go back to college. This week has been fascinating for LSU because, again, you have this College World Series, but then you have the transfer portal. Mm-hmm. Tommy White, maybe you heard his name at the beginning of the season. He was a freshman at NC State. He was freshman of the year for college baseball. He had a ton of homers. Christian Little in your backyard, Jim mm-hmm. Vanderbilt starting pitcher. Both of these players, Christian Little could be a preseason top 10 pick for the 2023 Major League Baseball draft, was supposed to be the Friday night starter for Vanderbilt. Both bolted and has joined LSU. So LSU has sent shockwaves in college baseball with the moves that they have made. And if LSU is demonstrating its financial power, oh no, their rivals in the SEC will not let that go. So pay close attention to how much ba- how much money is going to be fed into SEC baseball programs, and the ACC will follow behind. Yeah, that. part of me would like to see Ethan Katz hired away, just because you know I was talking about this on the radio with uh, Dan Bernstein, Lawrence Holmes. Like, when's the last time a White Sox employee got hired away by somebody else? Yeah, that's a great point. Hired away, I don't remember. Traded away. I mean, Miami traded for Ozzie Guillen, but hired away. Like Juan Nieves is the one I could think of. Like Don Cooper's bullpen coach went to Boston. Oh, yeah, he went to Boston. But since then, like, there have been assistant hitting coach jobs here and there. Like Greg Walker kind of latched on um, as an assistant hitting coach, I believe. And then, you know, they've had some, you know, I think Jeff Manto was like a hitting instructor for Baltimore system. But, like, nobody's had lateral to uh, promotions from other organizations. So if Ethan Katz got lured away, I would just be happy if the White Sox made a hire that somebody else wanted. (laughs) Well, Ethan Katz, he's got some work cut out for him later tonight as we release this podcast on Mondays as the Chicago White Sox make their way to Anaheim to face Los Angeles Angels, a homecoming of sorts for Ethan Katz. The Angels... I don't know what to say about this team. They're 35 and 40, even though Mike Trout and Shohei Otani continue to post amazing results. They're third place in the American League West. They're 11 and a half games back at Houston for first place. In their last 10 games, they're treading water. They're five and five. And this season series split uh, between the White Sox and Angels in late April going into early May uh, as they split that four game series at Guarantee Ray Field. Monday night at 8.30 p.m. Central Time. All these games are at 8.30 p.m. Central Time. Lucas Giolito will make the start for the White Sox against Noah Syndergaard. We did not see Syndergaard in Chicago as he had some type of stomach virus uh, that bumped his start. Tuesday night at 8.30 p.m. Central Time, Johnny Cueto against to be announced for the Angels. And Wednesday, what a pitching matchup. Michael Kopech for the White Sox against Shohei Otani. Jim, what do you make of the Angels? Because, again, Trout is hitting. Mm Otani is doing things that we've never seen before in our lifetime in back-to-back games, hitting two homers, uh, driving in eight runs, and then striking out 10-plus batters uh, as he makes the next start. But this team is 35-40. and They just got involved in a huge fight with the Seattle Mariners on the field. This is a messy team. Yeah, it's the, you know, like, uh, as I mentioned a few times, the Tungsten Armo Doyle tweet, uh, you know, can't be beaten. Like, no matter what, it's the perfect tweet. It can't be beaten. Uh, just, um, <laughs> you know, it, 
it reminds me a little bit too of just the, you know, our talk about the Mariners, you know, here and there, and especially like on our live streams on Tuesday games and my distrust of the Mariners being able to put a team together. I kind of have the same, you know, uh, idea of Anaheim, just, you know, I think from ownership on down, like, you know, especially the, the Skaggs thing and the trainer being uh, convicted, uh, you know, just they, they, they have a whole bunch of shady dealings up and down the entire chain, sometimes a tragic results. And it, it I, you know, they, they had a GM switch to, and maybe that can't solve everything in one winter. Um, but yeah, it, that, that's kind of my read on them is just, I don't trust them. Like no matter what, I don't trust them. And I just kind of strip them down to, I like watching Otani. I love watching Trout. Like those are my, like, I'm going to enjoy the series just because as a baseball fan, I enjoy watching what they do. And I enjoy watching the White Sox compete against them. Uh, when they beat them, awesome. When, you know, Otani hits a 460 foot homer, 150 miles per hour with the bat. Cool. <laughs> like just as a baseball fan, <laughs> uh, it, it's uh, like, you know, when it, when I, when you see Otani make contact the way he does like that hundred was 119 miles per hour that he had this yeah. weekend, like just like makes me want to throw furniture through a window. Just the, the kind of like the, the, the jolt that gives you watching it and just wanting to understand what that feels like to hit a ball that hard and that pure. So that's, you know, but again, like that's, I've been watching the angels like that for eight years, like not Otani, but like with trout, just like enjoying, <laughs> enjoying the talent, but like ultimately never feeling like they're a threat. And that's not me saying that the angels can't sweep them because as we saw at the Orioles taking three out of four, like, yeah, the white Sox no longer have the benefit of the doubt in terms of their schedule, helping them out. But just as a team, uh, they don't feel like they're a team. If that makes sense. Do you think homecoming would help Lucas Giolito? Because I mentioned this is homecoming for Ethan Katz. It's also homecoming for Lucas Giolito. And the last few podcasts, we pointed out the very concerning numbers for Lucas Giolito. Something needs to change. What are you watching for with Giolito Monday night against Noah Syndergaard and the Angels? I think, you know, the... You know, looking at the numbers, looking start to start and watching his changeup get beat up against right-handed pitching his last time out, or right-handed hitting his last time out, um, I think I'm going to be looking at fastball uh, spin rate. Just because, like, the spin rate's down from last year. Even after the crackdown and sticky stuff, it's still down a couple hundred RPM. And I just wonder, you know, my theory, leading theory right now, because we've bounced a few theories around, and my leading theory right now is that the fastball is lacking that extra hop an extra little bit of carry, just whatever, you know, the top third of the zone, it's lacking that ability to get by bats in a way that forces hitters to pay attention to it enough to take attention off the changeup. And because the changeup can be seen easier, especially by right-handed hitters, like that's just, you know, he can't toggle between those two pitches anymore, depending on which one's getting worse swings at a time. And that puts stress on the slider and the sliders might not be that good of a pitch to take the stress off the changeup being the primary, sometimes his number one pitch. So to me, I think now, you know, basically watching, you know, having some theories and then like applying those theories to watching them and saying, no, that's not right. <laughs> I think right now I'm going with fastball spin and his ability just to uh, set hitters up in a way that allows a changeup to actually do what it did before. Failing that, the slider needs to be better. I just don't know if that's entirely possible in, in, in a way to get back to like being a Cy Young finisher, uh, being a, a slider second guy versus a changeup second guy. I just don't want to be holding my breath when he gets to the, the 70th pitch or he faces the lineup. 
the third time gym. Yeah. So if he if he can do that, if he can, if Giolito, I would say can get six innings and only allow three runs, so a quality start, I'd be very happy for him. That would be a great start from what we have seen in his past five starts on the mound for the White Sox. But that those are great things that we could track during the game for Lucas Giolito, as you mentioned, Jim, the spin rate for the fastball for him and the velocity and see how that fares against this Angels line. But yeah, I think you know to, to what you mentioned about 70 pitches, the other part is Tony La Russa having an appropriate hook. And we saw that with Lance Lynn, you know, saying that the seventh inning was his inning. Why? You know, why for any pitcher, but also why for a pitcher coming off the injured list and still building himself back up to, into his previous form. How do you allow a pitcher to have four runs scored on his tab in the seventh inning? Like that's, observational analytics. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, I think, you know, now I think, you know, we'll see what shape the start takes. I know we talked about last time out that he just dug too deep a hole. The bullpen was too tired from a 12 inning game the day before he had to wear it. Like there was no point yes. having the bullpen coming up, uh, you know, when he was at 70 pitches because it wasn't worth chasing a win down two or three runs uh, to cover two thirds of a game. But should it be a more, a competitive game or should the White Sox have a lead or be down one and you're starting to get to the fourth, fifth innings and he's approaching at 70 pitch mark. When will he start getting the bullpen ready? That's a good question. Well, we'll see what happens. Jim and I will be recapping this series on Sox machine live. That's going to be on the off day, Thursday, June 30th. Cause I don't think anyone's going to watch us at midnight. Uh, is the White Sox and Angels wrap up. So we'll have that show on the off day this upcoming week, Thursday, June 30th, as we'll also preview the San Francisco Giants series as the White Sox head to San Francisco. We will not see Carlos Rodon face the White Sox, but could we see your mean Mercedes face the White Sox? As a, pitcher. a little tease. Uh, <laughs> as a pitcher? He <laughs> has. Uh, uh, as a tease for Sox Machine Live later this week. But coming up next, it's time for your questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where our Patreon supporters submitted these questions. And if you would like to have the opportunity to submit questions to us or topics, you can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash machine. And Jim, the first question that we got from is from Tim Brown. And Tim wrote to us, did the Baltimore Orioles just put the final nail in the coffin of the White Sox 2022 season? What should we watch for the rest of the year? Lenin Sosa's development, Jose Abreu suitors, Danny Mendick's water aerobic rehab. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they put the final nail uh, just because, you know, as we talked about earlier with the home run problem, this team might be able to tap into some power that hasn't been able to access at any point this year. And they could look completely different. And the AL central could be sloppy enough to where like 85 wins uh, puts them in the picture. Just, you know, everybody gets dragged down to their level. It's, you know, a three team yeah, race is probably too strong of a word. <laughs> Just a, um, yeah, basically like it's going to look like the 12th round of heavyweight fight towards the end where every team is, they have two punches, then hug the rest of the way. Um, but let's say like, let, let's indulge a scenario and let's say like, you know, what happens if like this is as good as it gets, <laughs> which I think is kind of how I interpreted the spirit of the question. 
And yeah, it does come down to like who can be moved, uh, you know, whether it's Abreu, Pollock, you know, Kendall Graveman. Do they move him earlier because he can't pitch on back-to-back days? Maybe do they try to get out from under him uh, rather than, you know, try to rely on him too much? Liam Hendricks, is he somebody who can be moved? Uh, that would be one, uh, you know, one aspect. But if you're not expecting the White Sox to be like stripped for parts, then I think, you know, it comes down to having Luis Robert, having Juan Mancata, having Eloy Jimenez, look anything like themselves or what they're supposed to be by the end of the year in order to open up transactional possibilities after the year. I I think, you know, basically having all avenues open to reshape the roster are going to be needed, you know, in order to make this a very compelling offseason. Because right now I think if if Moncada limps to 162 games and Jimenez, you know, comes back hitting grounders and then gets injured again, you know, like, which has been the case when he doesn't have his timing. Like, I don't know where the White Sox go. Like, they're kind of in dead ends with a few roster spots, and either they're going to have to, like, try to trade them for, you know, 40 cents on the dollar and just call it good and, and you know, try to strike, uh, you know, gold with an underappreciated prospect or, or young player elsewhere, or, um, you know, they're going to have to stick with it. And I think, you know, White Sox fans are tired of the status quo. So I think even if it might feel like it's, after the fact, uh, you know, not better late than never because late still sucks. Um, I think, you know, just trying to get compelling performance. And it might feel like false hope if Yohan Makata finishes strong in a situation where the White Sox are out of it. Or if, you know, Jimenez finishes strong. Like, it could, like, just feel like it's another rope-a-dope. And it's going to inspire the White Sox to do nothing. Uh, and, and they're going to fall into the same situation again next year, which could very well be the case. But I think in order to be able to float interesting trades with conviction among us as we're, you know, discussing off-season plans and whatnot, I think it would take, you know, having strong finishes by at least some of these cost-controlled guys in order to, uh, you know, really have a super transactional winner that's possible. With Bryce Harper breaking his left thumb, getting hit by a pitch by Blake Snell in the series against Mm -hmm. the San Diego Padres... I wonder, no matter if the White Sox get back in this race or not, that if A.J. Pollock to the Phillies makes sense because the Phillies need an outfielder. Yeah. I think Pollock to the Dodgers, too, came up when uh, Trace Thompson was yeah, a solution. So, yeah. They're going with Trace Thompson and Eddie Alvarez. The Los Angeles Dodgers in the year of our Lord, 2022, have a Trace Thompson and Eddie Alvarez platoon trying to fill in the void of Mookie Betts. And the Giants are going with your mean Mercedes to replace Luis Gonzalez. And Dallas Keuchel made a start for the Arizona Diamondbacks. What is going on in the National League West? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But, you know, to Tim's point, like, that's something that's on my mind that regardless if the White Sox get themselves back into this race or not, I wonder if they move AJ Pollock mm. to open up that spot for Aloy Jimenez because of the fear that Pollock could opt in to his contract next year. And maybe the light white Sox don't like what they see right now. And they don't want to deal with that in 2023 or he gets a, hurt or he just gets hurt the rest of the year and doesn't help. Right. So he's playing, he's healthy the Phillies need an outfielder. I'm just, I'm planting that seed. I'm tossing that idea out there. If it's a terrible idea, let me know. But that is something that's on my mind. 
And if he comes up short of your stake bet, you're just going to want to get rid of him. Get well, out of my sight. Come on, Jim. Um, yes, obviously, that would be the case. There's three games left to go before the stake dinner. His weighted runs created plus, I'm sure, is in the 80s now. He's going to need to get out of my like, sight. Be gone. He needs AJ to Powell. hit like six homers against the Angels to give me a shot. Yeah, that's not happening. But, Tim, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Andrew Siegel, and Andrew wrote to us, after listening to Jim on the Future Sox podcast, which you can listen to on the Future Sox podcast every Tuesday, there are new episodes, I thought a mid-season top five prospects I don't want to see traded, and I wonder who is on yours. Andrew's list would be Lenin Sosa, Oscar Colas, Colson Montgomery, Vera, Nor, Norhe Vera, and uh, Christian Mena, the starting pitcher that's really opened up some eyes in Canapolis this season. I would go with that list, except subbing out Mena and putting in Brian Ramos. Um, you know, I'm a big Ramos booster here. And just with Mena, you know, it's just 19 year old Nabal, good number so far, but doesn't quite have the arsenal that Vera has. So I think if I'm looking at like teenage pitchers, or in the case of like Vera, he's not teenage, but he's, you know, kind of in that position developmentally just coming from Cuba and, and, you know, missing a year and having to kind of beat up on DSL prospects for tax purposes. Like he's in the same position developmentally with a long way to go. Like I'd rather put, you know, there's strength in numbers, but I also, if I'm looking at a top five, I don't think I want to devote more than 20% to that sort of pitcher. So I think I would just pick one of the two and Vera would be my guy among those two, but Mayo has been cool. Like I, I think, trying to think of a top 10, like he's probably number six, maybe number seven. If I, if I give Jose Rodriguez a full year to figure out double a, um, like right now, I think he's kind of Rodriguez, I think is like, uh, validating some of my fears that like a lot of his success at lower levels is just being faster in terms of processing the game, uh, than his peers in a ball. And now the double a is, uh, a bit sharper of a game and the pitching's a bit better. Like he can't get by on, you know, kind of like Nick Madrigal, the way he ran, you know, ran defenses and the minor leagues ragged. And then when he came to the majors, like diminishing returns, like that was my fear with Rodriguez. And so far that's being validated, but he's also, you know, still super young and figuring it out. So I think I'm going to give Rodriguez a full year in Birmingham before putting a number on him. But I think, you know, setting Rodriguez aside, like I think Mano would be the guy. I don't see anybody else like really, elevating into the top six or seven in that similar way. If this is a, I don't want to see trade at list. I'm okay. If the white Sox wanted to move Lindy Sosa, it'd obviously just be in the right mm-hmm. deal, but my list would be significantly shorter. Like don't trade Oscar Colas. Don't trade Colson Montgomery. Let's see what you have in Norhe Vera and Christian Mena for a little bit longer. Everybody else is available. Yeah. I would in a top five. I would put Sosa five. You would put Sosa five. Yeah. Okay. Because there's only like four or three prospects to really protect yep. uh, <laughs> right now. I like Davis Martin. I like the yeah. dart. No, he and, and he had a nice, feeling he's getting moved. Yeah, he had a nice return. Although, <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be um, like another Connor Pilkington. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That is true. But yeah, as you mentioned, Jim, he had nine strikeouts in four innings in his return to Charlotte. He's pitching with a lot of confidence right now. And I know his last outing in the major leagues wasn't all that great, but he has been a very pleasant surprise for the Chicago White Sox in 2022. Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Adam Hicks. And Adam wrote to us, do you think the White Sox should trade Jake Berger now before his warts are fully exposed? 
If so, what level of player could the White Sox get in return? I don't think it would be much just because I think his warts are largely apparent. Like the contact is loud when it's when it's good, but I still think he's a he's a project and teams would see him as a project. So, you know, it kind of reminds me last year of the uh, trade, the very controversial in one clubhouse trade between Seattle and Houston, where Houston sent Abraham Toro uh, to Seattle in a four player deal and Kendall Graveman came back. So I think it was Joe Smith and Toro to Seattle for Kendall Graveman and Rafael Montero, I believe. And, but Graven was like the big guy and Toro was like the prospect going back. And uh, Toro, you know, he had a little bit uh, longer of a run in the majors and didn't quite tap in the numbers, but his minor league track record was better. So kind of a similar situation in which one guy would be kind of reaching the end of his time in one organization or one organization might be saying like, oh, we, we're not going to be able to get more out of him than we've already gotten. What can we get? And, you know, Houston found Graveman. So I, I think... That's kind of how I would look at Berger right now in terms of his trade value. Uh, I think you know, a team like you know that has at bats to give uh, might be interested in him, or is you know, you know, wants to give him major league at bats, but also is open to having him you know work with AAA coaches to work on some stuff and get back to the majors with a purpose. Like I could see him being interesting for another team, but not. I think it would take that kind of like Graveman. If it's going to be somebody who can make a difference on a major league team like Graveman, it's going to be like a guy like who only has months left on his contract, like a Graveman. Mm-hmm. Like it would be that kind of deal, like a Ryan Tapera deal, that sort of thing. Yeah, not much, Adam. Not much. And would White Sox fans be okay with that if they trade Jake Berger for a reliever who's going to be a free agent after this season? I, I don't. I, I would say the majority of White Sox fans would not be okay with that, Jim. Well, especially depending on like if Moncada's ever looking like himself or his 2019 self or 20 even 2021 self for more than like a series at a time. Right. Like if Moncada like took over third base and, and looked fine and, and, you know, the situation is contingent on his health, then I think, you know, everybody would be more amenable to a deal. But with the infield depth being ravaged and Lennon Sosa being both the emergency guy and also like a, a very uh, reasonable a candidate to make starts around the infield. Like, yeah, that's, it's pretty rough shape. So trading Berger without Mancata there, uh, feeling confident in him would be feeling like, uh, just, uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week from our Patreon supporters. Again, if you would like to submit a question or topic in a future episode of the Sox machine podcast during PO socks, Sign up to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash machine. You get exclusive content, ad-free versions of the podcast and website, and the first opportunity to acquire our Socks Machine swag. Monthly plans start at $2, and you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash machine. And that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Apple Music and Spotify. And the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>